is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Federal Reserve takes bold action to try to stabilize the economy and slow down inflation. It raised a key interest rate by three quarters of a point. Now, that's something that hasn't happened since the 1990s. We'll go in depth later in the show to find out what it means for the economy and, well, for all of us. A new Yahoo News YouGov poll finds most Democrats and Republicans are pessimistic about the future of democracy here in the U.S. In fact, a majority on both sides say it is likely that America will cease to be a democracy in the future. So are they right? And the third January 6th committee hearing starts tomorrow. We'll learn about more evidence it says it has against former President Trump. But is the American public really paying attention? People thought all those sanctions would weaken Russia because of the war in Ukraine. Is it actually hurting us here? We'll go in depth into some concerns coming out of the White House. The results of higher gas prices, more gas theft. Thieves in Nevada looking to provide a cheap supply, apparently, for Californians. And uh, beer belly might be bad for you, but beer in your belly, just a little bit, could be good. <laughs> we'll explain the results of a new study. Uh, why do I have a feeling people are going to just, like, rush out after that segment and go, <laughs> Any okay. excuse. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We start, though, with the uh, concerning poll about the future of democracy. Susan Stokes is director of the Chicago Center on Democracy at the University of Chicago. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I always take any singular poll with a grain of salt, but this one is somewhat disturbing, is it not? Yeah, it is disturbing. I, I wish I could say I'm surprised. I'm, I'm not so surprised by the results, but, but I am depressed by them. Um, I think we, uh, I, I don't think what it means is that people would prefer to live under uh, autocracy, that they prefer not to have the choice of the leaders uh, of our country. But I think people are feeling pessimistic um, about where things are going. Do people see that there's going to be some sort of violence that makes this happen? Or have they just kind of given up on each other and they think that somebody's going to get in power and then that's going to change? I mean, what what is uh, going on when, when we start to kind of pull the threads on this? So I think one of the big things is people are feeling much less uh, uh, trust in elections, much less sure about the integrity of our, elect our electoral system. On the Republican side, you know, it's been hammered into them to think that the 2020 presidential elections were, were fraudulent, the, the so-called big lie. And, um, and, and then as a, as a response to that, uh, that sense of insecurity among their voters, or maybe as an excuse, um, state legislatures have uh, have taken measures that make ballot access more difficult, and and also um, are you know some candidates are embracing the the big lie and are running for office and and are saying that they're going to make sure that that doesn't happen again in uh, in 2024. So um, so I think that there's a there's a lot of fear on both sides. You know, some of it's unfounded, some of it's well founded. That uh, we can't trust our elections to uh, to work the way they're supposed to work. You know, and, it, and it's interesting because you started off saying that you don't think the poll indicates that people would prefer not to live in a democracy. And I suspect you're right about that. But does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because as more and more people lose uh, hope or the, even uh, the acceptance of democracy as the foundation upon which this country has always functioned, that then, you know, they start 
discounting elections. They don't care anymore what any politician says, whether it's Republican or Democrat. And before you know it, you fall into that trap that some other countries have unfortunately easily have already fallen into. That's exactly right. It is. It can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And and furthermore, uh, I think that if the I don't think the poll asked a question like this, but I think if it had, if it had gone on and said, um, you know, why do you think that's going to happen? And does that upset you? I think a lot of people's response, Democrats and Republicans would be, well, we're not really a democracy as it is now, you know, that we we've sort of we've lost our democracy already, or we are on the path to doing that. And so the quality of the democracy that we have isn't really worth sort of standing up for and fighting for. And I'm more worried about what the other side is doing to me than I am about, you know, standing up for democracy. And and I, I think what I would add to that is that's a deliberate, uh, that's a reflection of deliberate strategies by political leaders. So, um, you know, there are good reasons that politicians have for trying to get us riled up and trying to get us very to be very cynical about our democracy. Um, so it's not that these are sort of spontaneous sentiments that are just coming out of the body politic. They're, they're the result of, of very cynical, very strategic actions by politicians. Susan Stokes, director of the Chicago Center on Democracy, University of Chicago. The January 6th committee has held two hearings so far as it looks to make the case that former President Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election results, which directly led to the Capitol insurrection. The third hearing, scheduled for tomorrow after cancellation today, what will the committee look to show coming up? With us is Gene Rossi, attorney, legal analyst, and former federal prosecutor. Gene, thanks for being with us. Uh, So you're a former prosecutor. How do you think they're prosecuting their case so far? Well, first off, I always knew that beer was good for you. But let me yeah. talk about January 6th. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, the first hearing uh, ex- greatly exceeded my expectations, and here's why. One of the biggest offenses is that for Donald Trump is that he didn't have the corrupt intent to impede, delay, or stop an official proceeding on January 6th. And that he had a good faith argument for, you know, everything he said about the voter fraud and all that. What Bill Barr, the attorney general, former attorney general and the others put a hole through is the argument that Mr. Trump had good faith. Bill Barr used some flowery language, called it BS. Other people called it crazy. So that goes to his intent. And that is probably the biggest thing has come out of the first two days of hearings is that Trump knew, Trump knew for certain that there was no big lie. And this hearing actually changed the big lie and made it all caps, bold, underlined, and italicized. And it really struck home with me that the good faith argument that Trump may have had does not exist. And and I, I think that's the biggest thing. The other thing is, you not only had the big lie that was just destroyed, but you have now what we call the big ripoff. And, and Donald Trump's campaign apparatus and any affiliated uh, organization or PAC is in trouble, in my view, because they sent out the big lie to raise money after January 6th or before it and raise money for a criminal defense fund that really did not exist. That is called fraud. 
and that is wire fraud, it's mail fraud, it's all the fraud you can think of. And when you're giving $60,000 to Kimberly Guilfoyle to give a two-minute speech, that is fraud on steroids. That has nothing to do with the criminal defense fund. So there's a lot of things that are coming out. And the last point I want to make is this. I didn't realize the extent of the venom and hatred at the end that Donald Trump had towards Mike Pence. And when Donald Trump heard that they wanted to hang him, they had a they had a guillotine, not a guillotine, but a rope. And he heard about all the chants about hang Mike Pence. And Donald Trump's in the Oval Office or in a side side room, gleeful, and said he deserves it. That goes to a lack of criminal content and here intent. And here are the charges that he's facing, possibly. One, a fraud against the United States. Two, a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Three, insurrection. And four, sedition. And I got to tell you this, they're going to send on a silver platter all the evidence they've gathered, the thousand interviews, the transcript from the hearings, and they're going to send it to Merrick Garland, who gave us a who gave us a clue. He said, I am watching the hearings and my prosecutors are watching the hearings. Yeah, but well, watching and doing are, are two different things, as you know. And you said the word possibly. I mean, is that with a capital P still? Possibly something comes I, I out of this? It, yes. And I, I, here's why. Merrick Garland has incredible integrity. He's brilliant. But he's a judge at heart. He's been a judge way, way, many, many years. And he could be, should be on the Supreme Court. That's how gifted he is. But as a prosecutor, he's not as aggressive as I and some of my, you know, former colleagues uh, think he should be. Um, if he had somebody that was aggressive, uh, there would be much more action. However, when he says he's watching the hearings and that his January 6th prosecutors are watching the hearings, that's a big statement. I can tell you that right now. So so what happens if in the end uh, there are indictments against some lower folks in the White House and, and people connected with Trump and the Trump uh, campaign apparatus, but not Donald Trump, because I still find it hard to believe that any Justice Department, even with perhaps, as you put it, a more aggressive prosecutor in charge, would actually have the spine to indict a former president of the United States. For whatever reason, I, I find that hard to believe that they would do that. So let's say for the sake of our argument, they don't do that in this case. And then for the sake of, the, of, of our discussion, Donald Trump uh, runs for president and wins again in 2024. Then this whole thing is for naught. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. But but I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. And if they indict the individuals below Trump, you know, individuals in the White House or in the campaign that cross that line, uh, if they indict those folks and not Donald Trump, you're going to have the same public outcry that occurred in the summer of 1974 and, and into 75 when, when Gerald Ford pardoned uh, Richard Nixon, you're going to have tremendous outcry that the law should be applied equally and the king is not above the law. But that, but I remember that outcry and, I it, too. and it didn't really change anything. I mean, he, you know, Ford pardoned Nixon. Nixon went on to uh, to do uh, actually a fairly lucrative career a little he bit did. after that. Uh, so nothing really came of it. 
but but Gerald Ford wanted to end this nightmare, you know. And, and let's let's be real here, okay? Compare what Richard Nixon did. He tried to hide a bunch of a burglary by a bunch of buffoons, and he tried to hide that. Okay, there were other violations too, but compared to what we're alleging at the January 6th hearing, it's like it's like alleging uh, shoplifting from a 7-Eleven to robbing a bank. It's it just doesn't compare. And and I am hopeful. I really am hopeful. I could be delusional, but I've been hard on Merrick Garland, and I'm now starting to to give him a break here that he's taken it all in. He's going to get all this evidence from the January 6th committee, a thousand interviews, a thousand. They haven't been turned over yet, to my knowledge. And that is going to shake the tree. And plus, these hearings are really presenting evidence that goes to what I said at the beginning. Donald Trump now has no good faith basis to argue he lacked a corrupt mind. We now have the opposite. There's plenty of evidence his own attorney general said, you're basically breaking the law, and that's as good as it gets. Gene Rossi, attorney, legal analyst, former federal prosecutor. Oh, coming up, all those sanctions against Russia could be hurting the U.S. more than Russia. And a beer a day, that's right, a beer a day might keep men at least healthy. Swap it out for the apple. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Uh, right now, though, the same Yahoo News and YouGov poll we talked about earlier had some interesting findings about the January 6th hearings. Fewer than one in four people say they watched last week's hearing. Nearly half polled say they haven't really followed at all. Mark Sandalow, political analyst uh, with the University of California Center in Washington, D.C. Mark, thanks for being here. So what do you do with uh, hearings that are supposed to be, you know, the most important thing when it comes to democracy, according to some? And um, people just aren't really tuning in. Hey, we're used to this in Washington, you know, I mean, Washington, we think everything is important. And um, most people in town agree with us. And then the further west you get, forget it. And by the time you're in California, you guys are talking about things like having a beer a day is good for you. Uh, this is sort of, uh, it's not a surprise. <laughs> That said, I, I don't think that these hearings uh, were ever going to be. I mean, let, let's, I mean, 19 million people watched that first prime time uh, hearing. Uh, that's not an insignificant number. It's funny that that poll you're citing says one in four Americans said they watched. They're lying. It was much less than one in four. I, I trust Nielsen more than I do people self-reporting. And it's more like one in 15 Americans were watching. Um, it is about the 15th most watched show of the year, although it was the second highest non-sports show of the year. But, but, but I don't think the point was ever going to be to change minds. People's minds are made up on this. I mean, if Donald Trump, they had all these videos of his aides saying, yeah, they told him that this was ridiculous, his election fraud, and no, they did not uh, think that anybody took it seriously. Um, if they instead had a video of Donald Trump saying, yeah, I tried a coup. Of course I tried a coup. I want to take over because the people did not want Joe Biden. I don't care what the vote said. I ought to be president because I really think that I won the election and I ought to be president. I still think you'd have the polls about where they are now. I mean, I think that the minds are made up. Those people who do not like Donald Trump are uh, loved this as a show. Those people who didn't, who loved Donald Trump either didn't watch it or don't believe what is in front of their eyes. And if it's going to make a difference, 
it's only in the margins. Okay, so so and, and I guess I agree with you that that the the hearings were probably not designed to change minds. And some people have said, no, what they're really designed to do is to hand a blueprint over to the Department of Justice for potential prosecution. Mm -hmm. But then other people say it's really unlikely, no matter what the evidence, and 1,000 interviews or not, that a former president of the United States is ever going to find uh, him or herself uh, ever indicted for a criminal offense. So if the first part is right, that the hearings were not designed to change minds. And if the second part turns out to be the case, which is it's not going to lead, perhaps, to any criminal indictment of Donald Trump, then what is the point? So, you know, a lot of this is theater and political theater, and that's not necessarily a worthless exercise. If you remember going back about 25 years to uh, Henry Waxman, the Los Angeles congressman, who had hearings and he had every owner of the or every president of the big tobacco industries raise their right hand and promise to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. And they were asked one by one, do you think that nicotine is an addictive drug? And one by one, they said no. They stammered a little. They said, no, nicotine is not addictive. And, you know, I teach at the University of California. My students, sometimes when I show them this, it's like, yeah, that was a quarter century ago. You guys knew nothing back then. It's like, no, we, we knew in the 90s uh, that cigarettes were bad for you. They knew that in the 60s. What Waxman effectively did is to show that these are liars who can't be trusted and that when they say things, you should discount what they say. It was a very, very effective piece of political theater. I think in some ways they're trying to do the same here. They're, 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 they're trying to put it on the record that when allegations are made by the former president or his supporters, they are hammering with evidence away at that saying this can't possibly true. I also think they make it a little more difficult for this to happen in the future. J just today, there wasn't a hearing, but they released a video. They had asked uh, this congressman by the name of Louder Milk from Georgia, did you show some of these protesters around the Capitol the day before so they could get like surveillance? He said, absolutely not, never did that. Well, today they show a video where sure enough, that's exactly what he's doing. At least he's taking a tour around the Capitol. He was not being honest about that. And one of the people on his tour was taking pictures pictures of stairwells and entrances and security. If nothing else, it sends the message that if you're going to try something like this, we have ways of coming after you. And I think that that may be important in and of itself. And I still have a hard time believing that there aren't some people out there. If they took a thousand witnesses and compressed it into you know, a couple hours worth of hearings, when Democrats compress that into a 30-second campaign ad in 2024, it's hard to believe, at least around the margins, they don't hurt Donald Trump's chances of becoming president again. Mark Sandalow, political analyst, University of California Center in D.C. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Borrowing money, taking out that mortgage, going to be more expensive. Federal Reserve raising a key interest rate by three-quarters of a point. And that is the largest increase since 1994. The goal to try to tame inflation as fears grow about rece a uh, recession. Milton Israti is with us. He's the chief economist at uh, Vested. Milton, thanks for being with us. So uh, I always want to know what things mean to me. What does it mean for me that the Fed did what they did today? Well, Two things it might mean to you. The first is that the, whatever the Fed says about this, and, tr and um, 
Chairman Powell is trying very hard to uh, dodge the questions. It makes a recession more likely. Uh, and the other thing that it might mean to you is that if you're thinking of borrowing money, it is certainly going to make that more costly. Tell us why it makes a recession more likely. We'll start with that first one. All right. Well, when the Fed raises rates, as it's doing, uh, it's discouraging home buying. It's discouraging consumer borrowing. It's discouraging business borrowing. All those loans are spending are what support the economy. Uh, So there's going to be a pullback. The Fed hopes it's a slowdown, a soft landing. Uh, But history says that when they do this sort of thing, it usually results in a recession. Nothing like we had in 08, 09, but still a recession. So this this is probably a weird question, but what's worse? Is it worse having a job but not being able to afford to buy anything because it costs too much or not having a job and not being able to buy anything because you don't have any money? <laughs> well, I don't think that's the trade-off the Fed is working on. but um, it, They it, may not be it, working it, on it, but it may be <laughs> it's gonna happen. It, may be, it, may be, it may be what some citizens are facing, yes. Well, the problem the Fed has, and this is something that Powell couldn't say at the press conference that followed the decision, is that if they don't do anything about the inflation, it is not going to be you have a job um, and you can't afford anything because the inflation itself in time will create a recession. So if he doesn't beat it, and it may be creating a mild recession to do so, then it's going to create something a lot more severe, maybe a few months or a year down the road, but it too will create a recession. So it's not a choice of we can let this go by and allow people to suffer with the inflation but avoid the recession. There's really no way he can he can uh, he can dodge this anymore. Are we also just out of good options because this wasn't caught quickly enough when it was oh transitory it's going to be tra- trust us well no. Yeah, well it certainly wasn't transitory and uh, to a lot of economists, myself um, included, that was pretty obvious because we've been building the basis for this inflation for a long time. Um, but if if the Fed had acted a year ago instead of when it did, first action was in March. Uh, it's not that long ago. Uh, if the Fed hadn't dawdled or dithered or um, prevaricated for a year, uh, they might be ahead of the game and the, the pressure would be less to control this thing. Are you, are you, trying, are you trying to say they screwed up? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought. Milton Zerati, a chief economist at Vested. Once the war in Ukraine started, the U.S. and others hit Russia hard with sanctions. Now, the goal was to cripple Russia economically, so it pulls out of Ukraine. Is that working? Russia's recent oil profits due to rising prices have made up for loss in exports. And Bloomberg's reporting some White House officials are acknowledging the sanctions have led to economic suffering here in the U.S., with us is Gary Huffbauer with the Peterson Institute of International Economics, expert on sanctions and trade policy. Gary, thanks for being here. So how would you uh, characterize how this is going so far? Well, the big hope at the beginning was to deter Russia from invading. That was before February 24th. But the sanctions were too uh, amorphous at that time. And Putin didn't believe that he'd be hit with what he's been hit with. So the deterrence failed. Now, when you come to the punishment phase, and that's all these heavy sanctions we have on right now, um, you you have to weigh them against the uh, dedicated policy of Putin. And once a major country like Russia decides it's going to go on a certain course, 
it's really hard to reverse that course with sanctions. And as you said, uh, while Russia is selling less oil, it's making a lot more money per barrel. And so in terms of its own budget and its own uh, trade balance, it's doing okay. There's a lot of pain in Russia, <coughs> but um, not enough to change Putin's mind. So does there come a point when we come to the conclusion, perhaps, that the sanctions are starting, if not already, having a, a more negative effect on us, at least in the short run, than they are on Russia? Well, the Europeans were afraid of this right at the beginning because, of course, they are much more reliant on Russian oil and gas and other products than we are. We have very little direct trade with Russia. Uh, but now that we're into the sanctions game in a big way, I would be very surprised to see a reversal, even though, and this was not anticipated, I think, by the Biden administration, uh, you know, energy prices, oil prices are up to $120 a barrel. It's creating a lot of inflation here in the U.S., and that's very painful. But once you've set your course in this way, uh, it's not going to be quickly reversed. What are some of the other reasons that they'd be hurting us after the talk at the beginning? Like you mentioned, that it won't so much be us. It's more Europe because they're more linked. Uh, is it that so many companies just just pulled out, abandoned Russia entirely? The Bloomberg article talks about, you know, self-sanctioning almost, saying, you know what? I've washed my hands of everything over there. You're right. Um, I was impressed that so many U.S. companies withdrew and about a thousand big companies in total have withdrawn from Russia, and they've taken a big hit, about $60, $70 billion of losses they've taken. Um, so that's very painful. But in addition, uh, you know, Russia is a, quite a supplier of, of grains, and uh, there are parts of the world that are very dependent on grains, both from Russia and Ukraine, which, of course, is blocked. And... Uh, Hunger is quite prevalent. I'm talking about parts of Africa and the Middle East. And these countries aren't happy with what's happening. And in part, they blame the U.S. So uh, I think foreign policy concerns for what's happening in other parts of the world is, uh, is also playing into President Biden's calculations. You know, I, I do wonder uh, if our intelligence uh, apparatus misjudged a number of things about how the sanctions might impact Russia. I, I was reading the other day about, you know, after McDonald's, for example, pulled out, and that wasn't really because of the sanctions, but because as a company it felt it wanted to get out of Russia. But still, uh, in, in terms of it wanting to add to the weight of the uh, economic uh, uh, infliction on the Russian economy, uh, but the thinking apparently was that once, you know, McDonald's pulled out because years ago Russia had to import to the country all the raw ingredients, it would hurt them. Instead, it turns out that the Russians over the years have managed to produce the raw ingredients to make the jumbo hamburgers and the fries. <laughs> and so they're just doing just fine by renaming the 800, I think, plus restaurants throughout Russia. And people are going in and having the same food that tastes exactly the same because 
they have the ingredients. Why didn't we know this stuff before? Well, my my guess is that the CIA gave a pretty good appraisal to the uh, Biden administration, the policy people of what would happen, including, as you said, the jumbo hamburgers, which can be made in and made in Russia. And Russia being a pretty big country has a lot of of reliance on its own uh, supply chains to to deal with with sanctions. Having said that, the inflation in Russia as a result of the sanctions is probably running at 15 to 20 percent, which is high and painful. We've got 8 percent. They've got twice as much. And the economy in Russia has dropped, whereas ours is still growing, perhaps slowly, but we're still growing. But their economy will be down about 8% this year. So there is pain, but it's not pain that's going to change Putin's mind. And remember, Russia, going back to many wars, uh, has endured a lot of pain in history, and that's well known in the Russian population. And so I think I, I'm I, I'm pretty sure neither the CIA nor any other intelligence agency would have told the administration that the sanctions once imposed would change Putin's mind. Gary Huffbauer, Peterson Institutes for International Economics. Gary, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Thieves are taking advantage of the high gas prices. Police in Las Vegas finding that commercial-style trucks are being used to haul gas out of the tanks at stations <laughs> and then uh, bring them to places like here in California. Well, there's certainly a market here for cheap gas. With us to explain how rampant this is now is Detective Matt Rogatka with the Financial Crime Section of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Detective, thanks for being with us, am I right? Are you at a gas station now? Currently, yes. I'm parked at a gas station. Were you getting gas or are you investigating something? <laughs> Have you found it? any criminals? <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Well, I was on my way to work, but uh, I had noticed earlier today leaving the gym that there might have been a gas station that had a pump had a card skimming device on it. So when I headed into work, I stopped here in the shade and I'm parked right in front of the pump. In fact, yes, there's a skimming device on the exterior of the pump right now. Oh, so you ne- you got them. <laughs> yeah, I got a skimmer, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So that used to be the old way of doing it, right? They'd steal our card info and they'd make off with that. But now they're actually going and stealing the gas. They are, yes. So, I mean, it's with the, obviously, as you guys talk about, with the increased prices of gas, uh, especially in your guys' state, the, the theft of this fuel, whether it's gasoline, mainly diesel a lot, throughout the U.S. is just skyrocketing. So how does this thing work? They, they, they pull up to a gas station with a, a big truck and do what? Yeah, so they have these trucks that are significantly modified with tanks that are hidden uh, within the cargo areas or the truck bed of it. And they've even used passenger cars in the past for smaller amounts. But they'll pull up to the pumps. Uh, lately, what they're doing is breaking into the gas pumps and they're installing uh, or manipulating the internal components of the gas pump to fool it to dispense more fuel and they still have to prepay so they're either paying with cash or a card to activate the pump and then using the manipulation of the gas pump they're obtaining let's say anywhere from you know 500 to a thousand gallons of fuel uh, for 
pennies on the dollar. You know, five, ten bucks sometimes we've seen that only being charged on a card or prepaid with cash. Okay, so first off, they must know what they're doing if they're getting inside the pumps and moving stuff around. And second, that's a lot of gas. And third, I guess, that must take a long time. Absolutely. I mean, we've had reports over and over from all over Nevada that, you know, I kind of get a central call from, you know, agencies all over because a lot of my suspects, unfortunately, are from the Vegas area. And late nights, a lot of these gas stations, especially in your guys' state, too, will close. So the gas pumps are still operational. So the suspects will pull up, try to park farther away from the gas station. So they can't, if there's cameras, they don't, you know, capture them as much. And they'll be parked there for hours. I mean, the longer they can sit there, the better if they don't get disturbed. If, if it's the stores open, sometimes the clerks might notice that these trucks are parked there for a long time and they might shut the pumps off and the suspects just gradually leave. All right. So, so I, I guess I have two questions. One, then what happens to that gas? And, and I guess, two, th- this clearly isn't being done by amateurs. So how no. organized is this? It's, it's very well organized. Uh, I mean, it's been growing. I've been doing financial crimes for over 14 years. Uh, I've been seeing the fuel thefts that's uh, grown over the last 11 years, especially since the whole COVID shutdown and more trucks on the road, and the higher demand of diesel fuels. I saw a huge increase of these trucks stealing fuel from gas stations. First, they're using credit card fraud to buy it, and then Next thing you know, they start manipulating the pumps, and they're obtaining even larger amounts of fuel for next to nothing. How's that? They'll use the stolen card and then buy a whole bunch of gas and then steal that. They're double dipping. Um, One of the stations out there said that there was actually one instance where somebody was towing a horse trailer, and then that was filled with tanks of stolen fuel. Was that one of your gets? Yep, it was. So that particular truck, what we called a transport truck, it, could ha- it had the ability to transport with the horse trailer attached about uh, 1,800 gallons, and he was, he was doing diesel. Uh, when we were offloading the fuel from the truck and the trailer, the trailer had about 1,300 gallons of diesel, and the truck had about, uh, I think, like two or 300 gallons of diesel in it at the time. But uh, that individual had admitted to police that he was transporting to California to sell it for a higher profit. When we say, or when you say that it's organized, is it basically one group, like organized crime kind of thing? Is it, are are they many groups, or or what's behind there, it? Yeah, there's many groups. I mean, there's multiple cells. You might have individuals from two or three people to five, six, ten people. They're doing it, and they just wreak havoc all around the city, and then they travel to cities like yours to do the same thing or sell it because they can make more money. That's wild. Detective uh, Matt Jodadka, Financial Crimes, uh, Las Vegas PD. Uh, Detective, best of luck to you finding all these guys. Thank you very much. You guys have a great day. You too. too. Thanks for talking to us. Fascinating. Oh, after a long, hard day, it can be quite refreshing to open the fridge and pull out a nice, icy, cold beer to reward yourself for getting through it all. And you would be rewarding your gut. New study in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry finds beer, lager beer, can improve a man's gut microbiome, the good bacteria down there, and then that can lead to um, positive health impacts. With us is the lead author of this study, Anna Faria, who's a professor at Nova Medical School across the Atlantic, Lisbon, Portugal. Anna, thanks for being with us. So what are we talking here? Just like one a day, one after work, and that's it? (laughs) Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, yes, we are talking about uh, one bottle of beer uh, a day with dinner or after work, but 
uh, we need to be careful with the, the quantity because uh, this study, in this study, we tested only a bottle. We can't say uh, that two, three, ten bottles of beer had the same effect. <laughs> yeah, you sure. anticipated everyone's questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't want to go. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to go through a case. You just want to have like one one bottle. But if I understood the study correctly. It didn't matter, did it, whether or not it was alcoholic or non-alcoholic beer. So does that mean that the alcohol isn't the isn't the uh, the issue here? It's something in the beer itself. Yes, yes, that was a very interesting finding. We had some studies before that uh, already uh, pointed this way, but uh, the fact that the alcoholic beer and the non-alcoholic beer had the same effect uh, make us. Um, to uh, give us here another alternative, another choice, uh, that is the beer without the alcohol and without the deleterious effects of alcohol. So um, now we can have one beer with alcohol and two beers with no alcohol. <laughs> Was that one of the things you were trying to figure out? Because like you said, we've had previous studies that, you know, in moderation, beer can be good for you. Wine, they've done the same thing with wine, right? Just have a glass of wine. Maybe that's good for you. But now you're looking in, in that non-alcoholic direction. Yes, because uh, people are, are trying to have a healthier and a, a healthier lifestyle, and alcohol sometimes um, it doesn't fit this uh, lifestyle uh, program. But uh, people do like beer, do like the taste of beer. So uh, the non-alcoholic beer uh, is is getting uh, its space in the market. So uh, we need to to understand if the the non-alcoholic beer could have the, the same effect as the alcoholic beer. And uh, yes, we, we think it's not alcohol that is making the difference, but the other compounds in the beer, uh, the compounds that are from cereal, from hope, uh, from the, um, uh, the yeast fermentation. So uh, beer is a rich, a very rich product, uh, even without the alcohol. So, so uh there were no men, right, involved in the study. So, so one question uh, I'm sure people are going to have is uh, mm -hmm. how how come no women were studied? But that aside, can one extrapolate from the results of the study with men and say that the uh, healthful effects of drinking a bottle of beer a day would therefore uh, carry over to women too? Okay, we we just. Uh, uh used and had men in this study because uh, it was a, a pilot study, a, a very small study. So uh, men and women could have here uh, confounders and uh, we uh, only choose men to, to minimize these confounders. Uh, but, uh, and we have only healthy men and this is very important. We don't have uh, men with any kind of disease. Uh, I think with healthy women, we can extrapolate the, 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 the results, but obvious uh, study with uh, a larger number of participants with women and even with a, a wider range of uh, ages, we had uh, men between 20, uh, 23 and 58. Um, it, it, it is important to, to, to make these studies um, with women and to confirm that our suspicions that the the results can be extrapolated are true. Does it have to be a lager or can you drink a different kind of beer? <laughs> we only tested lager, so for now I'll just say lager. But uh, in Portugal, we 90%, I think, of the beer uh, drink in Portugal is lager, so... <laughs>
But let me but let me ask something because you know for years there was this notion that you know a glass of wine a day was good for you, yeah. and and that's sort of come into uh, some debate now. And there are some I guess uh, more recent studies that indicate that uh, the earlier study, studies might not be correct, and and it may not make a difference whether you have a glass of wine or not a day. Um, how confident? And I get it that it was a very small pilot study. But mm-hmm. how confident are you that it is going to bear out when tested among you know a larger group of people? Women will be included. Uh, are you pretty confident it'll still hold? Yes, I, I'm confident because the, the the study was well designed. It was a randomized controlled trial. It was a double blind trial. People did they they knew they were drinking beer, but they even. Uh, even know if they were drinking without or with alcohol. Um, so I think that the design, the design of the study is very strong. And uh, I think we, we could have um, similar results or even stronger results if we enlarge the, the population. Would food like beer-battered shrimp work? <laughs> <laughs> Just curious. <laughs> I don't know, but I can put that in my next, yeah. in my okay. next trial. If, if, if you study that, I, I'm in. <laughs> Let me know, and I'll gladly take okay. part. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for talking to us. That's Anna Faria, professor at Nova Medical School across the Atlantic there in Lisbon, Portugal. It could be. You know, it could be. Beer battered, battered shrimp or you know other stuff that they batter with beer. If you eat too many work. of those, you're going to have to take a probiotic anyways. Yeah. So, maybe, <laughs> so it all works It all out. comes out in the wash. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Yeah. All right. I I've, I um, agree with the previous wine studies that says, yes, you should drink a glass a day. Okay, so, so that's your... Forget opinion. the new ones. <laughs> okay. All right. That's in-depth for the day. We'll be back uh, tomorrow. 